Well, good morning, family, and good morning to you folks watching at home. Before we come to the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us, grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning and to give honor and worship to you, to fellowship together as the body, to be encouraged with a report from what you're doing with the Kirstings and uh, Righteous Rides and and uh, we pray your blessing on the Kirstings. Uh, uh, thank you for uh, their their labors for you, and we pray that you would bless them, um, meet their needs. And and Father, as uh, as Keith also participates in other ministries and ministry with men around the country, we pray your great blessing on him and fruitful uh, labor there for the kingdom. Now, Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would uh, meet us here. May your spirit work through your word um, to communicate to us that which we need to hear. May our our minds be uh, attentive. May our hearts be receptive. And Father, may we not only learn, but may we take what we learn and apply it in our lives. So, Father, to that end, we commit ourselves. We commit this time. May you be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week six of a seven-week series reviewing the seven statements of our chapel statement of faith. So if you're just coming in for the first time this morning or the second time, you're coming in at the end of a series, and I apologize for that, but it's been a valuable series. We're in our 50th year, our 50th anniversary as a church and uh, thought it would be a good, important departure from our normal working through a book of Scripture to go back and review uh, these foundational statements that uh, we have as a church that say this is what we believe. These are the foundations upon which we are built and to, to dig in and examine them in the light of the Word of God and uh, not only to understand them well, but to recommit ourselves. Yeah, that's right. We believe these are foundational truths, not only to our church, but foundational as believers in Jesus Christ. And today we come then to the sixth of these seven statements. We've looked at a statement about the Word of God. We've looked at a statement about God the Father, the Trinity. We've looked at a statement about Jesus Christ, a statement about the Holy Spirit, a statement about salvation. And today we come to a statement that's all about the church. And I'll put it on the screen. I'd like for us to read it together. If you would join me, let's read. The church is the body of Christ comprised of all those who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And its mission is to disciple all nations, presenting the gospel to them. It's not uncommon, perhaps it's even uh, popular these days, for people to make statements like, I like Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Or, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I really just can't get into you know, organized religion. Things like that. Other people may not verbalize such sentiment, but they simply treat the church as irrelevant or they believe the church is optional for Christians today. 
Jesus, however, has a very different view of the church. A very different opinion. He loves the church. And he is passionate about it. Just like a groom is passionate for his bride. In fact, most of us know that the Bible even speaks of the church as a bride of Christ. It's called the bride of Christ. We see it here in Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25-27 Jesus loves the church. And as this passage tells us, He died for the church. He's in the process of making the church holy, beautiful, glorious, perfect. It goes on to say, past this, what we just read, down in verse 29, it says that He nourishes or feeds the church and He cherishes the church. So literally, Jesus treasures the church even as a husband does His bride. If we go to the end of the Scriptures, actually not quite the end, you go to the last book and the the two chapters from the end, Revelation chapter 19, What you find there in Revelation 19 is there's a marvelous scene that unfolds there in that chapter, a scene in heaven where the church is finally united with our Savior, with Jesus. And it's described as this great celebration, matter of fact, as a wedding. It says there in Revelation 19, it says there, let us rejoice and exalt And give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, for someone to say that they love Jesus, but they don't love His church. Or they love Jesus, but they don't think the church is very valuable or very significant or very important. I think that person doesn't really understand or doesn't really know or perhaps even love Jesus. Because you see, if you love Jesus, you're going to love what He loves. You're going to value what He values. When many people hear the word church, they often think of a building like this building. Or they think of maybe an organization, a spiritual religious organization, a religious system. But when the Bible speaks of the church, that's not what it refers to. When the Bible speaks of the church, it doesn't refer to buildings It doesn't refer to religious systems. It refers to people. This word church in our statement, the church, 
It, it comes from the Greek. The, it's translated from the Greek. The, the word is ecclesia. That word ecclesia is a compound Greek word, meaning it's two words put together. It's ek, which means out of, and klesia, which means called. So literally the word translates called out of, or it means the called out ones. And when the Bible uses this word, it took a a very common word from the Greek language. The word ecclesia in the Greek was used commonly and it would refer to, very often would refer to a political gathering, a gathering of citizens who have come together to discuss a, a matter that, you know, needed to be worked through. Or it could be used to refer to a gathering for any, any specific gathering for a specific purpose. It's people called out to meet together. Now, when, when the New Testament took that word and made it to refer to what we think of as the church, it was using it to refer to those called out by Jesus Christ. The church is those people who are called out from the world as believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus first used this word in this way. In Matthew chapter 16, a verse that you may be familiar with, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is with his disciples and he's asked the disciples a question. You know, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're this, you're Jeremiah the prophet. Some people think you're this, some people think you're that. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And you recall it was Peter who, you know, jumped in and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to that, Jesus makes this statement. He says says several things. And then he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the first time this word church is used by Jesus and and in the, the scriptures referring to what we would call the church. Now, the church was not in existence yet. Jesus saying, I will build my church, but it's not there yet. Matter of fact, it's going to be about a year, a little over a year, maybe a year and a few months later, that Jesus is crucified, that Jesus is raised from the dead, and then just before he ascends to heaven, we read in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, To his disciples, he says, to actually a gathering of about 120 believers that have gathered there. And he says, wait, stay here, stay in Jerusalem. For not many days from now, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we know that just it was just a few days later. It was the day of Pentecost. And on Pentecost, you recall as those Followers of Jesus are waiting and gathered in the upper room, as Jesus had said, that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And in that moment and on that day, the church was born. By the way, just so happens that the Jews call Pentecost, they actually call it Shavuot. And Shavuot begins on this evening, tonight. At sundown, you know, the Jewish day begins at sundown. 
And Jewish Pentecost begins today. If you look at most church calendars, you'll see Pentecost is celebrated next Sunday. But the Jews, this holiday begins today. And most of you are right now in awe thinking, wow, Pastor Keith planned this whole series to preach this message on the church, on the birthday of the church, on Pentecost. And I, if you're thinking that, wow, uh, I'm in awe of your admiration of me, but uh, it's way overplaced because it is actually pure coincidence, or at least it's the work of God. Nothing to do with me. I just was looking at the calendar as I was doing this message and thought, wouldn't it be great if this were Pentecost and realized it is somewhere. <laughs> it's not on the church calendar, but it is on the Jewish calendar. Well, while you shouldn't be in awe of my wisdom and my planning, the Apostle Paul was very much in awe of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, you, if we go there and we, we won't take the time this morning, but you'll see the Apostle Paul is, is marveling at this wonderful Truth and the wonderful mystery of the church that in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile have come together. It is a marvelous, wonderful thing, the church. Well, the church, what is it? The Bible uses a lot of descriptions, a lot of descriptive phrases, a lot of pictures, a lot of illustrations to try to help us get a little grip on what is the church? What is the church like? What is the church's relationship with Jesus? And uh, one of those pictures that it uses is the one that we've already mentioned this morning, the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ and he is the groom. So that's one picture that's there. Another picture is that the church is the sheep or the flock and Jesus is the great shepherd. And uh, it says uh, as well in Acts chapter 20, 28, we'll find that. It says, keep watch over yourselves. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he's giving them some instructions. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders. Be shepherds of the church of God, which, which he bought with his own blood. So there the church is the flock. And uh, it has been bought by Christ with his blood. The elders, by the way, they are shepherds, but they are under shepherds. We'll talk more about that maybe in a minute. Another picture, another illustration of the church and of Jesus is that the church is a holy temple. There it is. And Peter talks about that. We find that for one place in Ephesians chapter 2, but Peter talks about it in his little letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. The Apostle Paul, writing the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, says you are being built, you are a, a living temple. We are stones that God is building into a living temple in which His Spirit dwells. And so while the church isn't a physical building, the church is a spiritual house, a spiritual building. Peter goes on there to give another illustration in the very same verse. He says, uh, being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. 
You see, we are a holy priesthood as the church. Jesus is the great high priest. We see that here in the book of Hebrews. And so the church is the bride of Christ. We are the sheep, the flock of Christ. We are a holy temple. We are also a kingdom of priests. But probably the most significant, if not one of the most common pictures of the church in the New Testament is that of the body of Christ. It's the one that was, our attention is called to here in the, in the statement of faith. The church is the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and here it is, his body of which he is the Savior. Similarly, over in Colossians chapter 1, it says, And he is the head of his body, the church. The church is the body of Christ. But what does that mean? What's the, what's the picture getting to? Well, it's, it's trying to illustrate that the church is to be the, as it were, the physical manifestation, the physical representation of Jesus Christ on planet earth. Jesus Christ, when He ascended to heaven, He told those believers to wait. And a few days later, the Holy Spirit came upon them and the church was born. And Jesus intended for the church to pick up the ball, as it were, as He left and to carry on where He left off. We are to be in the earth. We are to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. Following His instructions, submitting to His leadership, doing His bidding. That is what the church is to do and the church is to be. It is not only, not only does Jesus love the church, the church is absolutely essential and critical to what Jesus desires to, to do in this age. Jesus' purpose in this age is dependent upon the church. By the way, just a little aside, as I was thinking about this, and I read a moment ago from Acts 20, 28, that Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. He owns it. And here the point is that the church is His body and He is the head. We need to remember that the church is under His leadership. He's in charge, not us. As His body, we are to follow His instructions. We have, as we mentioned, we have the Apostle Paul talked about the elders in the church of Ephesus and he called them shepherds. We have elders, shepherds here in the flock at the chapel. But we need to remember that we are not the shepherd. We are under shepherds. We are all under Christ. It's very important for all of us to know that it's not our church. I think many, if not most, of the problems in churches around the world today happen because they've forgotten whose church it is. We forget whose church it is. We, we make it all about ourselves. We make it territorial, you know. And so my opinion really matters here because this is my church. No, it's not. That's what leads to church fights and church splits and divisions and factions in the church. 
been so grateful and so pleased that over the 50 years in this church, there's never been a church split, never even a church fight that I'm aware of. Because one thing that our, our flock here has, has well understood is it's not our church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's Jesus' church. And we get to be part of His church. Well, the church is the body of Christ. But who or what makes up the church or the body of Christ? I just said we do, but let me be a little more specific. Our statement says that it is all of those, the church is comprised of all of those who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is comprised of those who have been born again by faith. Becoming part of Jesus' church is not a matter of joining this church. It's not a matter of joining the chapel of the lake or a matter of joining the church down the street, or any church in particular. Becoming part of Jesus' church is not about doing some good spiritual thing or a whole bunch of spiritual things, enough spiritual things. We can't do enough. Becoming part of Jesus' church can't be done by anything we can do. It's not by our works. It's kind of like trying to pay off the national debt by what's in my pocket, and I realize I don't have anything except fingernail clippers, which really won't pay for much. That's how it is when we try to deal with the problem that every one of us have. Pastor Aaron reminded us of all of this last week when we looked at salvation. We are desperate. We are helpless and hopeless Because we are born into sin. We are sinners. We have a debt that we cannot pay. We cannot make ourselves part of God's church, part of His family. We cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot do, we cannot get rid of our sin. We cannot overcome it. Jesus said, the only solution John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, you must be born again. He told that to a guy named Nicodemus who had come to him in the middle of the night because he was kind of embarrassed going to Jesus to ask this question because he was supposed to be a spiritual leader and he didn't know the answer. And he wanted to know, basically, how do you get to heaven? And Jesus said, he didn't even get to ask ask the question. Jesus knew his heart when he came in. And I love it because it starts off, Jesus answered and he hadn't asked the question yet. Jesus said, you must be born again. If anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And Nicodemus asked the most logical question you could ask. How? How can you do that? How can a man enter back into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, not talking physically. Talking spiritually. You need to be reborn inside Spiritually. How do you do that? Jesus answered the question a few verses later. He says in John chapter 3 verse 16, just a few verses later, He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. How do you get born again? 
Believe in Jesus. Trust Him as your Savior. Simple as that. That's how you not only get saved, that's not only how you get to heaven, it's how you become part of the church. Entrance into the church, being saved, is simply by God's grace alone. There's nothing we can do to earn it, to make it happen. It's by grace, God's grace alone, through faith alone, believing in Christ Jesus alone. And then, the Bible tells us, ever since Pentecost, everyone who trusts in Jesus as their Savior, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit baptizes them. He places them into the body of Christ, into the church. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, when it says, for by we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. We were put into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We were put there, all of us, he says, when we became believers in Christ. Who is the church made of? It's made up, it's comprised by everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to call attention to those little words, all those who are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Because that is just a marvelous thing. As that verse says, we were all baptized by one Spirit, whether Jews or Greeks. And the Jews, trust me, didn't think the Greeks should ever make it to heaven. <laughs> whether we are a free man or a slave man, whether we are rich, whether we are poor, we all come the same way. The door is open. The invitation is given to anyone and to everyone. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And the church is comprised of every believer in Jesus Christ stretching across time from Pentecost to today until Jesus comes back. And it reaches across every barrier on earth. It reaches across cultures. It reaches across languages. It reaches across ethnicities. It reaches across nationalities. It reaches across social status. It reaches across geographical boundaries. It reaches across financial differences. The body of Christ incorporates and it connects believers, every believer, with Jesus Christ and with one another. It connects believers in North Korea and it connects believers in Southern Sudan and it connects believers in East St. Louis and in West St. Charles County. We are one in Jesus Christ. This is often called the universal church. As it says in the Apostles' Creed, you probably remember that, and you get down and you get to that part where it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And if you weren't raised Catholic, you go, hey, we don't believe the Apostles' Creed because it just says the Catholic Church there. Please understand, what it says there is not saying we believe in the Holy Roman Catholic Church. It says the Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal. We believe in the universal church. 
that every believer in Jesus Christ, everyone who's been born again by faith in Him, is in the church. What unites us is we are not united by skin color or by political leanings or by what music we like or by any of the other things that we tend to divide churches over about useless stuff. There are good reasons to divide churches over what the Bible says and doesn't say about truth, okay? But we divide so often over things that are so meaningless because we are connected and joined together by the truth of our relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. By the way, and I've, we've talked here all about the universal church. Pretty much everything we've said this morning has been regarding the universal church. The New Testament does use this word ecclesia, the church. It uses it in another way as we often use it when we talk about a local gathering of believers. We call this a church. Okay, We are meeting here together as the church. A local gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. The New Testament uses that word also. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. A few chapters later, he speaks of the churches in Galatia. He says, uh, as I directed the churches, plural, in Galatia. They're using it referring to local assemblies, local gatherings of believers, and there were several of them in the region of Galatia. And so that's a fine way to use it. It's just not the, the, the focus of our doctrinal statement here, nor is it the focus of the message this morning. But as I was writing this message, putting it together, I said, you know, we need to spend some time talking about the local church. Because I think that just as modern day Christianity undervalues the church universal, we also undervalue the church local. And so when we finish this series, which will be next week, I think the next week I'm going to come back and revisit this concept and this, this teaching in the Scriptures about the local church because I think it is very important to us and perhaps especially in this year as we celebrate our 50th anniversary. We've looked at the church as the body of Christ. We've looked at how it, who it is composed of. One last thing to look at here in this statement is to look at the mission of the church. And it says, it's the church's mission is to disciple all nations, presenting the gospel to them. The mission is to make disciples, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. And it tells us here in this, in this statement that we are to do that by presenting by proclaiming the gospel to the nations. We are to present the gospel of Jesus to people. Because as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, folks, it's important the gospel is important, and I'm not ashamed of it because it is the only hope people have. There is no other way given among men, no other name given among men, whereby we must be saved, it says in Acts. 
The only hope that people have is to hear about Jesus Christ. That God has sent a Savior for us in our desperate condition. And He's paid the penalty of our sin and we need to trust Him. The sad reality though is we live in a world of over 7 billion people and half of them have never heard this good news of salvation. That's what the word gospel means, is good news. That is a sad reality. Paul says we need to not be ashamed. We need to proclaim it. But I'd also notice that the mission is broader than simply proclaiming the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel and, and we want people to hear the gospel and to put their faith and trust in Jesus. But the mission is broader than that. It's bigger than that because we're to proclaim the gospel, but we are also to, as we read, well, we won't read. We'll read it right now in Matthew 28. Matthew 28:19. Here's the great commission, the mission Jesus gave us. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We often call that the Great Commission, and there is the mission. The mission is to make disciples. The beginning point of making disciples is what we've already said here. It's proclaiming the gospel. It's presenting the gospel to people so that they might hear and put their trust in Christ. But it goes on and it's to make disciples. And Jesus not only tells us that's the mission, He gives us what it is, the method of how we make that happen. What is it to make a disciple? Well, three things. First, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing them. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism doesn't save. We, we've already read in John 3.16, we're saved by believing in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not even baptism, so that no one can boast. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Putting our faith in Jesus does. That's what saves. But Jesus makes baptism an important step of obedience for His followers, for disciples. Baptism is humiliating. It's, in times, inconvenient. But Jesus says it's part of being a disciple. Those who place their faith in Jesus should be baptized. Why? It's an outward demonstration, something that's visible, something that can be seen of an inward faith, of an inward commitment. And it publicly identifies someone as a follower of Jesus and it publicly identifies them with other followers of Jesus, with the church. Secondly, we're to make disciples not only by baptizing, but by teaching. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. We are are to teach people. They are to learn. Followers of Jesus need to learn what Jesus says. They need to learn the Word of God. 
So what is it to be a disciple? Disciples are baptized and disciples are taught. So how do we make disciples? We baptize, we teach. First we present the gospel and then those who are who respond to the gospel, we baptize and we teach. There's one more participle there, one more thing in the in the methodology and the we have present participles, baptizing and teaching, and the other participle that's there is also a present one, but it doesn't show up well in the English. In our translation here, you'll read it. It's before the command, and it's the word go. Literally, it would be translated going. Going, make disciples. His point is this. As you are going through life, it is your mission to make disciples, present the gospel to people, and then help Help them to grow as disciples, to be baptized and to be learning the Word of God. It's to be doing what Keith was was talking about earlier when he was riding on a plane and he talks with a lady about Jesus and has opportunity to share with her and pray with her. And as he's getting his phone fixed at AT AT&T, who of us hasn't had to visit the cell phone store sooner or later, you know? But turn that into an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. As we are going, that's what it means. See, this is the mission of the church. And by the way, if if we're going to do that as we're going, all of us should be doing that every with, with with the people around us. We should all be engaging the mission personally with the people that we are neighbors to and that we work with and we go to school with and that we play golf with. We should be engaging the mission there. But if we're going to fulfill the mission, which is to disciple all nations or in Jesus' commission to go and make disciples of all nations, somebody's going to have to go to those nations. Brothers and sisters, that's why as a local church here, we are engaged in supporting and partnering in worldwide missions. That's why we have 25 partners that we we support and we pray for and we encourage working around the world in places where we are not and perhaps cannot go because they need to hear the good news of Jesus. This is the mission of the church. It's our prime directive. Make disciples by evangelizing, presenting the gospel, by going, by baptizing, by teaching. By the way, notice the first part of that great commission. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. How much authority? You know what that means is, when all authority says, This is your job, is it your job? Yeah. But for some reason, most of us live life thinking it's kind of optional. If I want to opt in, you know, okay, I'll, I'll engage the mission today and now I can check it off. Good for 2021. <laughs> the question should not be, see, if we are not engaging the mission, we're living in disobedience to Jesus Christ. The one who has all authority in the universe. The question should not be, will I engage the mission, but am I engaging the mission? If not, why not? How will I engage the mission? 
Some of us I know will probably object, and I'm often one who I don't do it publicly. I just do it myself, you know. I, I say, well, I'm not equipped for this. I'm too tired. I, uh, that's not my gift. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. I'm not this. I'm not that, right? You, got, you guys have excuses? I got lots of them. Notice the last part of that commission. Jesus says, this is the mission. I'm sending you. I have all authority. I'm sending you. But what else does he say? Lo, behold, I am with you. Always to the end of the age. You're not going to go this alone. Matter of fact, even better news. Because at Pentecost, Jesus told them right after this, he said, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. And what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Acts 1.8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And you will be my witnesses. Not only is Jesus with us, his spirit is in us. And his spirit is in us to enable us to do the mission. So let me close by just going back and reminding us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16.18. We read it earlier. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says the, his purpose in this age is to build his church. Jesus says, by the way, I will do it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Often we, people read that verse and they mistakenly take it to mean hell can't hurt us. Like gates are going to come and attack us. If you've ever seen a gate, they don't do that. Well, I guess they could swing open and hit you if you're not. Okay. That's not the imagery here. I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stop it. Oh. You see, he's sending us out to a world that needs to hear that Jesus Christ died for them. They need to trust Him as their Savior. And Satan is busy, the Bible says, he has blinded the minds, he has blinded the hearts of a lost world. And if we were going out on our own, you know how successful we'd be in, in bringing anybody to Jesus Christ? Zero. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't stop it. As I tried to summarize all this this morning, I put a little saying together as I was working on it this week. And I think this kind of summarizes everything. When the people of Christ will engage together as the body of Christ in the purpose of Christ, the presence of Christ assures that the power of Christ will accomplish the plan of Christ through us, His church. I find that really exciting. When the people of Christ engage together as the body of Christ in the purpose of Christ, then the presence of Christ assures that the power of Christ will accomplish the plan of Christ through question is, are we going to join in? Are we going to stand on the sidelines and just watch? Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for this passage. It's encouraging at the same time. It's challenging. Because the reality is most of us, most of the time, stand on the sidelines. We love hearing that we are part of the church, that you have brought us into the church. You've made us the the bride of Christ. You have made us the body of Christ. You have made us your sheep. You've brought us into your family. We love hearing all these things. We know that we we love being connected with you. We love the fact that we're connected to one another, that we are not alone here as followers of yours in this world. And yet we tend to neglect and we tend to miss your purpose in this world is to build the church and the very means of doing that is the church. It is our mission. Lord, forgive us. We confess that we so often have neglected the mission. Father, may we be faithful to engage as the body of Christ together to engage Your purpose, Your mission. And Lord, may we be used by You effectively to accomplish Your purpose so that You would be glorified, so that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we will have the joy of seeing You work through us to accomplish things we never imagined. Father, may that be true of us in this church, this local assembly of the Chapel of the Lake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.